true story of a woman and her turkey. Now, back then, uh, the Butterball Turkey Company had a hotline set up that if you had any turkey preparation questions, you could call the hotline and get advice from experts. And on one occasion, this a woman, a woman called in with a question about her turkey. She had found her turkey in the bottom of her freezer, and it had been there for 23 years. And she asked the Butterball hotline if it was safe to eat. And the uh, representative on that hotline informed her that if the freezer had stayed below zero degrees for the entirety of those 23 years, then technically speaking, yes, that turkey would be safe to eat. But the person on the hotline warned her that by at this point in time, it probably has lost all of its flavor and would not be enjoyable to eat. And the lady's response to that information was, that's what I thought. I'll just give it to my church. <laughs> and though we may not care to admit it, that is often the mindset we have when it comes to giving. We are comfortable with giving when it comes from our excess. We are, we are comfortable with giving when it comes from our leftovers. We're comfortable with giving when it, when it comes from our unwanted or our discarded stuff. But that's not how Jesus told us to give. You see, Jesus looked up, oh, excuse me, look, look with me at Luke chapter 21, verse the first four verses, I want you to re remember a story that Jesus told in this section of Scripture. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus held up this widow as a model giver because she prioritized God with her resources and as a result placed no stipulations on what she would and would not give. Yet generous giving like this is often the exception rather than the rule, even among Christians. But this contrasts with what Scripture asserts about Discipleship. Scripture asserts that citizens of the kingdom of heaven are cheerful givers because they recognize the blessing associated with giving. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Acts, to the 20th chapter of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 20, Paul gives a tearful farewell to the shepherds of the church in Ephesus with whom he had spent so much time working in the kingdom. He gave them encouragement. He gave them a warning. And then he closed out with a beatitude. It's in Acts chapter 20, verse 32 through 35, where we read these words of Paul to the elders in Ephesus. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak 
And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Paul assumed that this beatitude was well known. He assumed that the Ephesian elders were aware of this beatitude because he told them to remember that Jesus said this. What's so interesting, though, is that this beatitude is not recorded in any of the four Gospels. Apparently, it was one of those teachings of Jesus that was passed down from memory, but never recorded. And it was so well known that Paul could reference it as something that his audience was familiar with. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Even though this beatitude does not appear in the Gospels, it succinctly summarizes the attitude of Jesus regarding wealth, regarding stewardship, regarding our responsibility with our finances. And the idea behind it is more blessed to give than to receive was a major theme in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, stewardship was stressed by Jesus as a kingdom issue. Jesus talked more about wealth and possessions than any other subject outside of the kingdom of God in general. It has been calculated that one-sixth of all his recorded statements and one-third of all his parables deal with issues related to money and stewardship. And Jesus didn't talk about money so much because he was interested in making money. He talked about money because he was interested in making disciples. And he understood that money is one of, if not the greatest obstacle to discipleship. Think about what he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now think about all of the other alternatives he could have put in there to, in comparison to God. And yet he chose money. Because he understood something about money, that it vies for our affection like nothing else. He did not view money as a neutral entity. He spoke of money as a rival deity who competes for our devotion. And that's why he concluded these instructions, not by saying you should not serve God in money, nor by saying you must not serve God in money, Instead, he concluded with the phrase, you cannot serve God and money. And the reason you can't serve God and money is because to do so would suggest that money is on par with God when it comes to the allegiance of your heart. And God has made it very clear in the Bible that he will not accept another deity 
ahead of or on par with him. So disciples must make the deliberate decision to dethrone the God called money and enthrone the God who is in heaven. According to Jesus, this is primarily accomplished through willful and joyful giving. Because giving, as one preacher said, is a material acknowledgement of a spiritual surrender. This is exemplified in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 5, where Paul praised the Christians in Macedonia because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They understood the order of things. When it came to their giving, they understood that ultimately whatever they did was giving glory to God, that God received precedent, that God was primary And so they gave themselves first to the Lord. And that's why they were able to be cheerful givers. And when you understand that giving is not about you, that giving is about God, you come to understand why Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. In all actuality, when you give, you actually receive. That's because the blessing is tied to the giver. The giver is the one who's blessed. Therefore, the giver is receiving something because of their willingness to part with resources. The giver is the real receiver. And here's why. Four reasons why tonight. Givers are blessed because they imitate the character of God. Isn't the ultimate goal of discipleship to be like God? I mean, after Jesus interpreted Mosaic Law with all the, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you statements in the Sermon on the Mount, he summarized the objective of the entire law with this one instructed, with this one instruction. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's an imitation expectation. It's a call for us to imitate God, our Father. And then if you journey over to the book of Ephesians in the fifth chapter, in the first verse, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. He, ex- he presents this expectation that if we're children of God, then we're going to imitate our Father. And imitating God means that we will give because God himself is a giver. The most well-known verse in the Bible declares this to be true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. James said in James chapter 1 and verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And Jesus, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11 He said, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Throughout the Bible, God is depicted as a giver, as a generous giver, as a giver of that which is good. And if we're going to be imitators of him, then that means we also have to partake in giving. And when we willfully and joyfully give, 
We embody the graciousness of God. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul wrote these words, there was a famine that was taking its toll, particularly on Christians in Judea. And, and, and Paul went out to churches throughout the world, to these Gentile congregations, primarily Gentile congregations, to collect funds that he could then take back to Judea to help their Jewish brothers. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. He says that we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Twice Paul referred to giving as an act of grace. That's because giving is governed by mercy, not by merit. It operates based on a different economic system that seems upside down to the world. The world's economy operates based on receiving what you deserve. But the kingdom of heaven's economy operates based on the grace of the giver. And when we give, when we participate in this act of grace, we're imitating our Father. When we give bountifully, purposefully, and cheerfully, as Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we are imitating the one in whose image we were made. And in so doing, we're announcing his sovereignty, his reign to the world around us. So why does God bless givers? God blesses givers because through their imitation of him, they illustrate his graciousness towards mankind. And they announced the presence of his kingdom in a world that tends not to recognize it. In other words, one preacher said, givers make God look good. And so one of the reasons giving is blessed is because it causes us to imitate our Father. But another reason giving is blessed is because it demonstrates our trust in Him. The act of giving is a declaration that we believe God keeps His word. Do you know why? It's because when we give, we place our trust in God to meet the needs that our gift can no longer supply. Giving is ultimately an exercise of faith in God to take care of us. Because when you part with your resources, you can no longer use those resources. So how are your needs going to be met if you don't have those resources? You know what's so very interesting is that frequently when God provides instructions regarding giving, he follows them up with promises of sustaining. Let me show you what I mean. You can go over to the book of Proverbs, to the third chapter. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. That's the command. But here's the promise. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There's a command to give. There's a promise of provision. 
Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, a very popular passage when it comes to stewardship and giving. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and hereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The command is bring in the tithe. Because at that time when Malachi prophesied, the Israelites had stopped fulfilling that responsibility. And God's communication is, if you'll obey this instruction, guess what? I'm going to open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings upon you. And you can even go to this passage in 2 Corinthians that we've been looking at off and on. The ninth chapter, verses 7 and 8. Paul gave directions for giving when he said, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the command. And verse 8 gives us the promise. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, the message that's being conveyed throughout the Bible when it comes to giving is that, number one, you're expected to do it. You're commanded to do it. God calls you to give. But number two, God promises that if you give, he's not going to forget you. He's not going to fail to supply your needs. Now, don't misunderstand him. God's not promising to fulfill your wants. He's just promising to fulfill your needs. We get the two confused quite often. So why does God bless givers? Because in the process of giving, they are demonstrating their trust in Him. And every time we exhibit our faith in Him, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says that we please God. So givers are blessed because they demonstrate their trust in God. And givers are blessed because they validate their faithfulness to God. Jesus presented money management as a freshman level course in discipleship, if you really think about it. In other words, he presented stewardship as a foundational principle of discipleship that one must pass in order to move on to greater responsibilities. Think about the parable of the unjust steward that appears in Luke chapter 16 in the first 13 verses or so. It's such a strange parable because on the surface it seems like this steward is being praised for unethical business practices because he's reducing the amount people owe his master before he is fired. But instead of receiving condemnation for his actions, he actually receives commendation. And it's all because of his shrewdness, his ability to make wise decisions in the face of difficult circumstances, as well as his ability to recognize that people are more valuable than prophets. And Jesus concludes that parable with this application. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? 
In other words, Jesus is saying that if you can't be trusted with money, with unrighteous wealth, with that which is very little, then how can you be trusted with even greater responsibility, with true riches? He's calling out the importance of demonstrating your stewardship of what God has given you. He's saying you are validating yourself as a disciple by the way you handle your resources. And what is our responsibility when it comes to money, when it comes to stewardship? I like the way one preacher said it. He said God wants his wealth circulated to us and through us so that others can experience his grace and his faithfulness like we have. Let me say that again. God wants his wealth circulated to us and through us so that others can experience his grace and his faithfulness like we have. But there's one problem. Sometimes we have a tendency to become a bottleneck in God's flow of such blessings. Think about the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. He was blessed so much by God that he couldn't fit all of his harvest in his barns. And in the face of such blessings, he did not think, hey, I have so much that I can't even begin to use it, so I better give it to others instead. No, he thought, I need to tear down that barn and build a bigger barn. He became a bottleneck to God's flow of blessings. The text doesn't condemn him for tax evasion. The, the text doesn't condemn him for money laundering. The text doesn't condemn him for insider trading. The text doesn't condemn him for price gouging. The text doesn't condemn him for any unethical financial practices. The text simply indicates that he was a bottleneck to God's blessings that could have benefited those who were less fortunate. I also think about the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. The rich man and Lazarus, the beggar, both died. And while Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, the rich man went to torment. Why? The text doesn't condemn him for defrauding Lazarus. The, the text doesn't condemn him for abusing Lazarus. The text doesn't condemn him for stealing from Lazarus. It simply implies that he ignored Lazarus. When it says that Lazarus sat at his gate desiring to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And so in that parable, the rich man, like the rich fool, became a bottleneck to God's blessings that prevented Lazarus from benefiting from those blessings. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's sinful to have money. Scripture never says that. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What I am saying is that it's wrong to become so enamored with money that we fail to steward it according to God's will. We fail to utilize it to be a blessing in the kingdom of God. So why does God bless givers? Because the giver's trustworthiness with resources validates his or her worthiness to be entrusted with even greater responsibilities that he or she can steward for God. Givers are blessed 
because they validate their faithfulness. But they're also blessed because they accumulate eternal assets. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 33, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money, with, with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying is that you can't take material treasures with you, but you can send spiritual treasures on ahead. And you do this in part by giving. Look at what Paul instructed Timothy to teach those who are rich in this present age in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. He told him, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on this uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to serve, or ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's an old legend about Thomas the Apostle. It began as early as the second century and has developed over time, but according to the legend, the Lord sent him to India. And while there, he was employed by a local king to build a new palace, since Thomas was apparently a carpenter by trade. The king financed the project by giving Thomas a little money at a time as Thomas requested it. And each time Thomas approached the king for more money, the king would ask, how's the palace coming along? And Thomas would always say, great. But Thomas never started construction. Instead, he was taking the money and giving it to the poor. The king finally got suspicious and, 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 and told Thomas that he wanted to see the palace and Thomas' response was, you can't see the palace. I've been giving it to the poor, but I've built for you a great palace in heaven. The king had Thomas arrested and intended to execute him the next day. But that night, the king dreamed that his brother died and asked permission to come back and give him a message. And the message the brother came back to give him was, you should see the palace waiting for you in heaven. And so when the king woke up the next morning, he and his brother became Christians. Now again, that story is just a legend. But it demonstrates how far back the teaching that real treasure is the treasure you give to God and the treasure you build up in heaven. Because that legend started as early as the second century. Here's the bottom line. You're either moving closer to your treasure or further away from it, one or the other. If your treasure is here on earth, well, there's a day coming when you're not going to have access to it because it's going to be burned up. It's going to be nothing more than kindling, according to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
But if your treasure is in heaven, then ultimately you're moving toward it. You just have to decide what's really your treasure and operate based on that knowledge. Bob McEwen was a U.S. congressman when the following incident occurred. He had taken his son out to eat at McDonald's. He didn't order anything for himself, only for his son. When they sat down, the temptation that is that those golden, delicious French fries overtook him, so he ate one of his son's French fries. His son quickly responded, Dad, don't take my fries. And the congressman was stunned by his son's actions, and reflecting on this incident later, he wrote, My son didn't understand whose fries those were. He didn't understand that five minutes ago I went to that counter and I bought those fries, and I am the source of those fries. My son didn't understand that if I wanted to, I could take those fries away from him, or that I could go back to that counter and I could lay down some money and buy him and, and bury him in fries. But what my son really didn't understand was that I didn't need his french fries. I could have bought my own. What I really needed was his willingness to share what I had already given him back to me. And you and I must realize that God looks at us the same way. Everything we have is owned by him because he either created it, gifted it to us, or purchased it for us. May Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 serve as a, our guide. Those words were this. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. You and I are nothing more than stewards. Truthfully, we own nothing despite what the drawers and the closets in your house say. Or the cars in your garage say. Or the items on your desk say. It all belongs to God because that's where it originated. The question we have to consider is whether or not we're willing to give ourselves first to the Lord so that his blessings can flow through us to everyone else. Because when we do that, it will be more blessed to give than to receive. This evening, as we're gathered here, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that God is the greatest giver because he gave his son for you. And maybe it's time for you to give your life to him. By confessing that you believe Jesus Christ is the risen son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water so that those sins can be washed away, and then living faithfully, following him forevermore. Or you may find yourself today realizing you gave your life to him, but you haven't given your resources to him yet. You haven't let go of control over your finances, control over your possessions, control over your resources. And you're allowing that God called money to compete with the one and only true God. And you need to repent of that. Or maybe tonight you're struggling to believe, to believe those promises God has issued that if you prioritize him, he'll provide for you.
If you have any such need tonight, we want to invite you to respond to this invitation, to the Lord's invitation, because He is a God who is here for you, and He's a God who meets your needs. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?